Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 tonight, but I also want you to get prepared to go to Acts chapter 16 as well, okay? So Acts chapter 16, if you remember, is where a lot of the information about Philippians occurs. So tonight, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the last half of chapter 2 because it really discusses Paul's um, ministry partners so these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and so um, there's just not a lot of material there to go in depth. But we're going to read it because when you do verse by verse teaching, you got to you got to deal with it. So let's read together Philippians chapter two, starting in verse nineteen. Everybody there? Philippians two, starting in verse nineteen. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Okay, so this is the, the first ministry partner that Paul addresses, the young man Timothy. So let's just look at Timothy. I told you to turn to Acts, so keep your finger or punch in or swipe or however you get there. Go back to Acts chapter 16 because that's where we are first introduced to Timothy. In Acts chapter 16 verses 1 through 5, Paul is on his missionary journey, his second missionary journey. And this is where he encounters uh, Timothy. So let's look at this. Let's see how Paul and Timothy meet each other. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all know that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. Now, I wanted to stop and address something here about Timothy, because this question is asked a lot. Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? If circumcision is not required for salvation, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. If circumcision is not required for salvation, why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? It was not for a, per se, religious or um, purification reason. It was more so it would not be a stumbling block. His mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek. And so, if... Timothy was to be accepted by the Jews in those areas, Paul thought it would probably be better for Timothy to go ahead and be circumcised just so it wasn't a stumbling block. It wasn't a requirement. 
It wasn't part of Timothy's salvation. It was more of a, a missionary decision that Paul made to help Timothy get a better hearing, especially among the Jewish people, because they may have been prejudiced against him because his dad was, was, Jew, was Gentile and his mother was Jewish. And they may have said, well, you know, he's not truly... So it wasn't a requirement placed on Timothy for salvation. It was more of a practical reason in their ministry. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's how Paul finds Timothy in Lystra. And, and you find some things that Paul says in his other writings about Timothy, just this, this love he had for him. He was almost like a father to Timothy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.10, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy's doing the work of the Lord. And Second Timothy, Paul's writing to actually to Timothy, um, Tim, 2 Timothy 1, 4, and 5, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So he was raised by his mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures. He was a man that had sincere faith, he was doing the work of the Lord. Um, and then at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, But as for you, he's talking to Timothy, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy was very important in Paul's ministry. He was a son in the faith. Back to Philippians now. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered by the news of you, for I have no one like him. I have no one like him. They were like-minded. They were, they were connected in ministry. They had a kindred spirit, I guess you'd say. Literally, what the word there in the original language is they were like-souled. They had a common soul. We could say they were soul brothers. I don't know if that's what would be a good way to put it. But let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but is there somebody in your life that you would say, besides your wife maybe or your husband, that would be like a soulmate that you're, you're like souled with them, that you have a deep spiritual connection with somebody that's a deep friendship? That's basically what Paul is saying here about Timothy. And so Paul gives three reasons why he's sending Timothy. So remember, where's Paul when he's writing this? He's in prison in Rome, so he can't go back to the church that he planted, so he sends Timothy back to encourage them. Um, so Timothy's sent back, and, and he he's basically says, I'm sending him back for three reasons. Number one, he will gen he's genuinely concerned about your welfare. Verse 20, I have no one like him. He will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy really cares about this church. He's not just a shyster that's going to come in and, and, and not really care about you. He's not a false teacher. He definitely cares about the Philippians. He's going to come in and help. Number two, Timothy was selfless. He was about seeking the things of Christ, not his own interest. Verse 21, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's not self-seeking, but he is seeking the things of Christ. And then, am I missing a page here? No. I guess I missed the blank. I said there were three things, right? And there's two. What's the third thing, Sean? 
The third thing I think would be is that Timothy had proven worth there in verse 22. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father he served with me in the gospel. Um, So Timothy, basically Paul says, I can't go minister to you. So I'm ascending basically my associate pastor, my, my younger pastor, the the t- Timothy's going to come. He cares about you. He's a man of God. He's going to minister to you. Um, I trust that um, I'll be able to come to you shortly. Notice what he says in verse 24. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Remember, Paul, like, I hope I get out of prison so I can come visit you. Um, that was Paul's desire. Okay, so that's Timothy. All right, let's go to the second individual, Epaphroditus. Um, let me, let's go back to Acts 16. Let's see if we need to read that. That may be a lot of stuff to read. That, let's see, Acts 16, what I have? 16, 19 through 14. Um, we've already read all of that material. If you go back and read Acts 16, 19 through 14, that, we basically read that the first night we were together. That's when Paul and Silas were thrown in jail, the slave girl, all, all how the church was planted. So we don't necessarily need to go back and read that. Okay. Now, the second individual that Paul mentions is a man named Epaphroditus. So let's keep reading verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. How would you like to have a name like that? Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay? We know very little about Epaphroditus. He's mentioned here in Philippians, and he's mentioned in Philemon, verse 23. All we know is that he's a fellow worker with Paul, and he associated with him during his imprisonment. And so Paul sends him, and basically we find out that he's been very ill, almost close to death, and it's caused Paul to be very, very sorrowful that he almost died. Um, But then they're also told to honor him or to receive him in the Lord with all joy, because he almost became a martyr for Christ. Notice what it says there. I'm not exactly sure how to take verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Risking his life sounds a little bit more than just he was ill. That makes it sound like that maybe he was persecuted almost to the point of where he almost died. He almost became risked being a martyr to help Paul. Um, so either way, he was risking his life for the work of the Lord. Now, that made me stop and think. We have somebody that we know in, in, a, in a place, since we're live streaming this in the world, in South Asia, who at times has risked his life for the gospel. We have missionaries all around the world that are risking their lives for the gospel. There have been people that have been martyred for their faith that have risked their lives for the gospel. Uh, we have it very comfortable here in America. Anybody here this past week risk your life for the gospel? I don't think anybody is here has risked our lives. Maybe risked our reputation 
maybe had to stand up for something, but risking our lives, probably not. Um, and so these two men, basically, that's all we're going to say about these two men because that's really all we can say. Paul's sending these two guys back to the church to encourage them. He tells the church, receive these men. You know these men. These men are going to love you. I know I can't come visit you because I'm in prison, so I'm going to send these guys instead. All right. Now we're going to move into chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with, finally. And you're like, why does it begin with finally? And then I got two more chapters. Well, finally does not necessarily mean the way we think of finally. It could mean in the original language, now to another subject. Or so it goes. Or so it follows. And notice what he says there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There it is again. What's the theme of Philippians? I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart to stay. And I'm so happy. I'm so very happy. I've got the joy of Jesus. Anyway, that's an old song we sang as we were kids. I've got the joy. Joy is the theme of the book of Philippians. Why is Paul so repetitive on this theme of joy? Brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, what is joy? I'm going to give you that definition again. This is just Sean's definition. It's not inspired. It's not infallible. It's just a, a way that I've kind of thought about it over the years. So joy is that deep-seated, deep-seated sense of peace, contentment that rests in Christ's sovereignty and love regardless of our circumstances where, he, where we know that he holds us in his grip and gives us himself. Doesn't depend upon circumstances. Puts it deep in our heart. It's a deep sense of contentment, joy, peace, where God holds us in his grip. So Paul says, rejoice, brothers. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Okay, now we're going to be introduced to this group of false teachers, and they're called the Judaizers. It was the same group that Paul dealt with in the book of Galatians. It's the same group that, that the church had to deal with in Acts chapter 15. And so Paul is going to give a contrast between two groups of people. He's going to say, okay, here are the false teachers, the Judaizers. He's going to give three descriptions of them. And then he's going to turn around and say, now here, here's the true believers, us as Christians. And he's going to give three descriptions of us. And it all centers around circumcision. The metaphors of circumcision. So I am going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Because in Acts chapter 15 is where we do find the Jerusalem council and this whole issue of what was going on at that time and who these people were. So back in Acts chapter 15, this is, at the, this is after the first missionary journey of Paul. They go back to Antioch, the sending church, and they stayed there with the disciples. And then there comes this huge controversy where Peter and Paul and Barnabas go to the church in Jerusalem, and James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, he's kind of the senior pastor, and they have to deal with these issues because these men were causing problems. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 15, okay? 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a strong statement. What are they saying? You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. It was not grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It was Christ plus circumcision. Okay, so Gentiles who were not circumcised were coming to faith, and these Judaizers were coming and saying, that's great, I'm glad that you trusted Jesus for salvation, but really, that's not enough. To truly be saved, you really have to become like us Jews, and the only way to do that is to get circumcised. I don't know how women dealt with that. What did they say to women? It's not valid for you either because you can't get circumcised. So anyway, they were putting an extra requirement on the gospel of grace. Okay, that was the issue. That was what these men were doing. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love that, no small dissension or debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses." So what's Paul and Barnabas doing? Okay, Paul and Barnabas have gone to all these Gentile areas. Gentiles are getting saved. They go back to the church in Jerusalem. They say, hey, we've, we've been on this first missionary journey. All these Gentiles are getting saved. It's wonderful. It's awesome. And, and most of the believers there are like, yeah, this is awesome. People are getting saved. But these men stand up and say, now, wait a minute. They need to be circumcised. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, okay, by the way, is it okay for Christians to debate and to discuss and have heated discussions? Absolutely. You see it right here. This is just a side note that just popped in my head. We live in a culture where people are afraid to discuss things for fear of being mean or fear of debating or fear of... uh, The early church debated these issues. I mean, they had no small dissension in debate with them. I'm sure, I mean, it doesn't go into detail, but I'm sure Paul and Barnabas got into pretty heated discussions with these guys. Okay, verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Amen, Peter. Thanks for standing up and supporting Paul and Barnabas. So what does Peter do? Peter stands up and basically says, You guys are absolutely wrong. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, period. No circumcision. Okay? So that was the the controversy. Now, after that, 
these men that were causing this controversy didn't let it lie. They tried to infiltrate the churches that Paul planted and tried to spread false teaching. So they're infiltrating the church in Philippi to try to persuade that church that these Gentiles need to get circumcised. And Paul, who's in prison, writes back, and he uses some very colorful language to describe these men. Okay? So, it's all related to circumcision, because that was the issue. So the language that Paul uses is circumcision language, okay? So, it's a metaphorical contrast between the true circumcision and the false circumcision. It's a distinction between those who are religious and those who are righteous. It's a distinction between those who have an outward mark that identifies them with God and those who've had an inward change. So let's look at this passage of Scripture and see how Paul describes these men. Verse 2, look out. Okay, look out. Be on guard. These men are not going to show up announcing that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. You've got to be on guard. And Paul gives um, some, some interesting language here. In Galatians, this is what Paul said about them. Galatians 2.4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into slavery. These false brothers secretly slept, crept in. And Paul's saying these guys can creep into your church just like they did in the Galatian church, if you're not careful. So let's explore these three indicting terms Paul uses to describe these false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Who let the dogs out? Who? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> it's like, don't do it. Dogs. You're like, why does he call them dogs? Dogs in that culture. Like in our culture, dogs are loved. Our dog turned one years old today. We've had her, the puppy, for a year. And Taylor, who got us, who, who we got the dog from, she came, she's like, did you know that it was Oakley's year birthday? I'm like, yeah, we knew, and so everything. So we love our dogs, do we not? Back in that culture, dogs were generally hated by the people. They were, they were not domestic pets. They were, like, they were like wolves, like ravenous dogs that came and ate your, like kind of just came in and messed up with your chickens. They, they just caused problems. Um, they were like a pack of wolves. It, it was a derogatory term. It was a term that the Jews used for Gentiles. It was a derogatory word. It was almost like a cuss word that the Jews would use against a Gentile. You Gentile dog. You're a no good scavenger. We don't want you around. So that's what the Jewish people would call Gentiles, dogs. Now, what does Paul call these Jewish leaders? Dogs. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a pack of dogs? Pack of wolves. They're going to come in and they're going to destroy. So here's the irony. Paul's sticking it to them. Because these Jewish, these Judaizers would think to themselves, I am a Jew with a capital J. There's no way I would be called a Gentile dog. How dare Paul call me a dog? So Paul calls him a dog. Dogs. 
And then he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Evildoers. In the original language, it's, it's not necessarily that they do evil works. It's more to their character. They were evil. These were Jews who thought they were blameless and righteous and they were doing good works. They would never consider themselves evildoers. They're doing evil. They are evil. And then Paul uses a third expression here. What does he say? Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what in the word does mutilate the flesh mean? Got to read between the lines here. This is referring to what? Circumcision. What was circumcision, by the way? Let's just back up for some of you that said, okay, I'm assuming everybody knows what circumcision is. Okay. Circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin as an outward marker to say that you were a true Jew. Boys, on the eighth day of your, after your birth, eight days old, you would be circumcised. It was called cutting, the cutting. And so, for a Christian, circumcision had no real value in a personal relationship with Jesus. It was more an outward formality that was under the old covenant with Abraham. And, and so it's not a requirement for salvation. And so, there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about circumcision, about false teachers. So Paul calls these guys dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. A, a true Jew would not only be circumcised, but they had to obey every single thing in the Bible perfectly, perpetually, with no mistake whatsoever. And if that's the standard you want to live under, you're going to be under a curse your entire life. You're never going to live up to it. Galatians 5.3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to be circumcised, you keep the whole law. Impossible. Can't do it. Galatians 6.13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They're putting a burden on you. Now, let's just talk about false teachers for a moment. 1 Timothy 6.3-5 If anyone teaches a different doctrine, is circumcision being a part of salvation, a different doctrine? Okay. Is it in accord with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness? No. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Whoa. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Unhealthy, friction, depraved, puffed up. Second Peter 2, 1-3. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Paul says, he says it three times, look out, look out, look out. Look out for these men. They're dangerous, they're like a pack of wolves. They're evildoers. They're only concerned about bloating you down with circumcision as a requirement for salvation. They're not preaching the true gospel. They're false teachers. They're wolves in sheep clothing. Look out, look out, look out. They are the false teachers. Okay. Now let's look at the marks of a genuine believer. And Paul's going to give three. And he's going to talk about us as being the authentic Israel. Us being believers in Jesus, being the true circumcision. So he's going to take this theme of circumcision. He's doing this to kind of, he's doing this to dig in at these false teachers who are requiring circumcision as salvation. So notice what he says. Verse 3. For we, we, true believers, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, he calls us the real circumcision. So, when was the last time somebody came up to you and said, Hey, I hear you're a Christian. What does that mean? I'm the real circumcision. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Next question, <laughs> let me move along. What does it mean that we're... The, all right, so let's ask the question. Be a little graphic here, but we're okay. We're all adults in this room. What is physical circumcision? It is a cutting away. Cutting away. Okay. What is spiritual circumcision? It's a cutting away. Let's find out what it is that's cut away in spiritual circumcision. Okay, because it goes back to the new covenant promise in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, we have the promise of God of what he's going to do in the new covenant. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God's going to do an internal work on the heart to do what that Old Testament law could never do to the heart. The law is going to go in the heart. Something's going to happen to the heart. Okay? So if something has to happen to your heart, something has to be cut away. You have to be given a new heart. Your old heart has to be cut away. There has to be a spiritual circumcision done on your heart old heart and this is what Ezekiel says 
Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove, think about removing or cutting away. I will remove, I'll cut away the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There will be a spiritual cutting away to those who are true Christians where God takes our old, dead, stony hearts, cuts that heart away, and places a brand new heart in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul would say this in Romans 2, 28-29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, that doesn't make sense. Circumcision is not outward and physical? I thought that's what the Jews believed. It was outward and it was physical. Notice what he says. But a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I can say it this way. This may sound weird to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been born again and given a new heart, you are a true Jew, inwardly. You're an inward Jew. may not be an outward Jew, an ethnic Jew, or a circumcised Jew, but you're an inward spiritual Jew. You're the, of the true people of God because this circumcision has happened in the heart. That cutting away and that replacing. Paul goes on to say it this way, too, in Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is that? What's a circumcision made without hands? It's not a physical circumcision, it's a spiritual circumcision. So when God cuts away your old, dead heart. In a sense, it's like a spiritual circumcision. He cuts that away, and he replaces it with a brand new Holy Spirit living inside you, regenerated heart. And so when Paul says we're the real circumcision, he's basically saying, listen, it's not about outward ceremony. It's not about cutting off foreskin. It's about an inward change that's happened by the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. That's what the real circumcision is. The circumcision done not by hands. A spiritual circumcision done by God where he takes out a heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Is that making sense to everybody? Okay, a spiritual circumcision. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we, Gentiles, can be called Israel. Galatians 6, 16, And as for all who walk by this rule of peace and mercy upon them, upon the Israel of God. Okay, so that's the first thing Paul says. These guys are dogs, evildoers, and they're focused on outward circumcision as a requirement upon salvation. You, on the other hand, are the true circumcision. It's not done outwardly by hands. It's inwardly done by the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart. 
regeneration, being born again. That's the first thing Paul does to describe us in contrast to these false teachers. Now, the second thing he says there in verse 3, For we are the circumcision, comma, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ. We are the true worshipers. We worship by this. Notice the Trinity there. Do you see the Trinity? We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You see all three persons of the Trinity there? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are the true worshipers. In other words, as believers in Christ, we're not bound by outward religious ceremony. We've been born again through the Holy Spirit. We worship God and glory in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And didn't Jesus say this to the woman at the well in John 4, 23-24? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. We're the true worshipers. If you're in the flesh, if you're still unregenerate, if you haven't had that heart cut out, you cannot worship or please God. Romans 8, 8-9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We worship because we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. We can worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul would say it this way in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Okay. Somebody asks you, are you a Christian? You say, yes. What does that mean? It means I am the true circumcision who's a true worshiper. When's the last time you used that language to describe yourself? Now, we know what that means, right? What if I said it this way? What does it mean to be a Christian? It's a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God, given a new heart so that you can truly worship Jesus. That's all Paul's saying here, but he's using circumcision language to stick it to these guys that are making circumcision the issue. Okay? And then the third thing he says here, we put no confidence in the flesh. The end of verse 3. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, in the immediate context, what do you think he's talking about? What would be confidence in the flesh? What would be the, what would be the outward marker that would show that you are confident in your flesh? Circumcision, right? But, it, but basically what Paul's saying is we don't have to worry about out physical circumcision but what our issue is, is a spiritual circumcision of being given a new heart. It also means that we don't trust in what we can accomplish. I've told you this story before. I don't know where it came from, but it's kind of one of those pastor stories. You don't know who to attribute to, but you've heard it over the years. Um, these, these Chinese pastors came to America to visit, and they went around America, and they visited all the mega churches, and they looked at all the Christian colleges, and they looked at... Um, the Christian broadcasting, and they looked at Christian radio, and they just kind of looked at all the Christianity in America. And then um, the Americans were so proud to look at all the stuff that we've got here in America. And it came to be at the end of the trip, 
and the Chinese pastors were about to go back to China, and the pastors that, you know, that hosted them said, oh, what do you think of America? What do you think of all that we've got here? They were so excited, like, they, they were ready to hear, like, you guys are so awesome in America. And the Chinese pastor said this, it's amazing what you Americans can do without the power of God. <laughs> Whoa, not the answer I wanted to hear. There's a lot of things we can do in the flesh that require no spiritual power whatsoever. I was a youth pastor for many years. I know how to grow a youth group through pizza parties and games. You can do a lot of things in the flesh to quote-unquote look spiritual, but it may not truly be of the power of God. And Paul says here, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in what we can do. Because really, what can we do? Can't do anything. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited and salt land. If you trust in yourself or you trust in man or you trust in the machinery of man, Jeremiah says you're, like, you're out like a shrub in the middle of the desert with no water, just dying in the heat. That's what it's like if you trust in yourself. But, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see the contrast? Jeremiah is saying, if you trust in yourself, you're like a plant out in the desert just waiting to dry up. If you trust in the Lord, you're like a plant like a tree rooted next to a stream where you get nourishment and water and you grow. Okay? So that's what Paul says about these false leaders. Now, Paul is going to go into this issue where he's going to talk about his former religious life. So let's hear what Paul has to say about his life before God saved him. Verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, Paul's going to start to list his accomplishments. He's going to send out his resume here. Okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless... That's his life. So he divides his accomplishments into two categories, hereditary and achievements. Like not only was he from the right family, but he actually achieved. So what were his privileges of heredity? Well, he was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a good Jewish little boy. My parents were good Jews. They had me circumcised on the eighth day. I can go back and I can... My parents can tell you I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was an Israelite. I'm of the people of Israel. 
And as a matter of fact, I can tell you what tribe I came from. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. I can narrow it down to the tribe. If anybody was a Hebrew of Hebrews, it was me. I had the ethnic heredity accolades as a Hebrew of Hebrews. And not only that, not only was I born a Hebrew and had that Israelite blood and can trace my lineage back to the tribe of Judah, listen to my accomplishments. I was a Pharisee to the letter of the law. As a matter of fact, he was probably a Pharisee that was, that was exceedingly um, smart and advancing beyond his, his years. He was a young up-and-comer. Up, up Galatians 1, 13-14, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul was driven to be the best Pharisee he could be, surpassing other guys his age. He was zealous as a, as a Pharisee. Not only that, he was a zealous persecutor of the church. You go back to Acts chapter 8. Let's just go back there real quick. This is before Paul was saved. This is what started, this is what launched the persecution against the church. The stoning of Stephen. Paul is there. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And remember, Paul's name before he was Paul was Saul. Okay, so when it talks about Saul here, it's talking about Paul before Christ saved him on the road to Damascus. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. That was Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was ravaging the church. What does ravaging mean? It's like a wolf tearing him apart. He was going door to door to kill Christians. Paul was a persecutor of the church. And in the Pharisees' eyes, that was a good thing. 1 Timothy 1, 12-14, I thank him who's given me strength, cried Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I was a zealous Pharisee. I was one of the top persecutors of Christians, and I was blameless under the law. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul never sinned. It basically just meant that according to the outward religious duties, according to the law of Moses, he faithfully did those and was recognized as his peers as one without fault. Now let me ask you a question. In today's American church, God and country culture, i.e. maybe northeastern Colorado, a lot of people may trust in heredity or achievements. I am a Christian because I was born in America. I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm a Christian because our family goes to church on Christmas and Easter. 
I'm a Christian because I listen to country music and drive a pickup truck and try to be a good person. I'm a Christian because I was baptized as a baby. I went through confirmation. No matter what it is, what are you saying? I'm a Christian because of something I did or my parents did. I can stack up the resume, whatever it is. And Paul says, listen, I had the resume. If there was anybody who had the resume of being the Jew, the poster child for the Jew, a Pharisee, it was me. Now, I'm sure Paul, at that time before he was saved, think about it, he probably loved the attention. He was probably driven to be popular, driven to be on top, had it all, had the esteem of his colleagues, thought he was living for God. But I want you to see what Paul says here. Paul's new passionate pursuit. Listen to how Paul describes that old life. Look at verse 7. But whatever gains I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul shifts gears here and says, I'm making a huge contrast between my former life and what my life is now. And so before we dive into this text, we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at th this, this wonderful passage right here. Let me just ask you a question. How do you renew a passion for Jesus. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're kind of stuck. Maybe you're stuck in a rut. Maybe you just kind of feel like you're kind of going through the motions. Maybe you're even backslidden. You're not really, you don't, you don't have that, you know you're a Christian, but you don't have that deep, passionate intimacy with Jesus. Let's look at what Paul says about that. So Paul's new passion. Paul's new passion. In verse 7, Paul says, whatever gains, literally gains, plural, whatever gains, and he's, he's talking back to all those things that he had just listed. All those accolades, all those accomplishments, all those achievements, all those awards, everything that he had achieved, he counted as a loss. He counted as loss. When he says counted, we don't have an English equivalent for the verb tense. But basically it means that Paul came to the settled conclusion that I am leaving everything behind forever. He's making a definitive break with his past when Christ saved him. The way the verb translates, it's like this. I'll give you the best way of, of how it works. Paul is fully convinced 
and persuaded that his past gains were actually losses. This is a solid consideration that everything about his past amounted to nothing. Now, this is evidence of genuine conversion. When Christ calls you to salvation, there's a definite break with your past life. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. God's given you new desires. God's given you new affections. You've been born again. You don't want to go back to whatever you had before. True conversion means, true repentance means that what my life was like before, I can never go back there because in my mind, I'm fully convinced that it's loss. It's dead. It's gone. I'm a new person now. Now, it doesn't mean you never struggle with those things before, but it means that God has so changed your heart that you're moving now in a new direction. And notice what Paul says here in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you get nothing from tonight, underline, highlight, focus on those statements. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What does surpassing worth mean? You can't put value on it. The worth of it is beyond the charts. It's of an infinite value. And what's, what's of infinite value? Knowing. Knowing Jesus Christ. Now, it's very interesting that the word that Paul uses here, the word for knowledge here, the word for knowing, it's not just head knowledge. Not just, hey, I know some facts about Jesus. He was a cool dude. I, I, I know the death, burial, and resurrection. This word is an experiential, intimate, spiritual knowledge of Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Now, here's the paradox. Can you ever fully know Jesus? No. What should be our chief priority in life? To know Him more deeply. Of surpassing worth. There's no, basically, Paul said, there's nothing worth more than knowing Jesus. This is my life's passion, Paul says, is to pursue, passionately know Jesus. As a matter of fact, notice what he says there. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Those things in his former life, he counts as skubalon. Okay? Teach you guys a Greek word because it's fun to say. Sounds a little bit like Scooby-Doo. Skubalon. The word rubbish, it's actually, some people have a problem with this. Paul uses a PG-13 word. It's not a G-rated word, it's not an R-rated word, it's a PG-13 word. Um, I'll, I'll say it. It's not the S word, and it's not poop, but it's a word I couldn't say when I was growing up, but everybody says it now. It starts with C and ends with rap. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Like when I was growing up, I guess crap was like kind of a bad word we weren't allowed to say. But now everybody, I mean, it's like, you're, it's stronger than poop, but it's not as bad as the S word. And that's kind of what, I'm, I'm trying to be <laughs> diplomatic as I can here. That's the word Paul uses. Scubalong basically means a lump of manure, a pile of poop. It could mean rotten food, rotting corpse, trash, whatever's thrown to the dogs. The worst pile of stuff you can think of, in kind of a PG-13 way of saying it, that's what Paul's saying here. Everything in my life that I counted as valuable, I view that now as a big stinking pile of you-know-what. Because now I've got something greater. I've got Jesus. Instead of going back to the stinking pile of poop, I'm going to now focus my attention on pursuing Jesus and passionately knowing him. So let me just ask you a question here. Um, Now that we've kind of filled your mind with some things maybe you didn't want to think of on a Wednesday night, can we truly say that we consider our, our old life and the things we so dearly hold on to in our sin as piles of manure? That's a question you've got to ask. So that was Paul's passion, to know Jesus. Now, Paul's new priority is to gain Christ. Now, we need to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying here. At the end of verse 8, he says, in order that I may gain Christ. This is not talking about his, it's not Paul saying, I hope I get saved. I really hope that I gain Jesus. It's not talking about your salvation. It's not Paul like hoping I get saved. What he's hoping for in gaining Christ here, he's already been saved. He's already got Christ. He's already in union with Christ. What he's saying here is he's hoping, he's eagerly desiring for himself is someday to see Christ face to face in heaven. He wants to know Christ deeply. John Owen has said this. This is not in my notes. I'm, trying to, I'm bringing it up from memory. John Owen was probably one of the greatest of the Puritans um, probably the most prolific in, 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 as far as depth. But I'm paraphrasing. In his book, Communion with God, he said something like this. I don't want to, well, let me say it positively. I want to know Jesus so much here on earth that when I go to heaven, he's not a stranger. Now, we know that's not going to be true that Jesus is a stranger when we get to heaven. But his point was, we should desire to know Jesus so much here on earth that we long to see him face to face on that final day. And that's what Paul means here by gain Christ. That ultimately the prize for me is one day to see my Savior face to face. So Paul wants to know Christ, not just head knowledge, this experiential knowledge of Jesus, He wants to gain Christ. He wants to see Christ face to face. He longs for Christ. And so, again, question. Do these characteristics, or do these characterize you today? Do you have a burning passion to know Jesus more deeply and to gain Him as your all in all? Now, 
something has to happen to you before this can, can, can be a reality. You have to have a new position in Christ. And this is what Paul talks about, a position. Verse 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I want to spend some time on this. What does it mean to be found in Christ? To be found in Christ. What's the opposite of being found? We have a lost and found, right? We even call it that. What's the opposite of being found? Lost. So to be found in Christ assumes what? Before you're found in Christ, you're lost without Christ. You're unsaved. You're separated. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. So to be found in Christ means to be saved, yes. But we talked about this a few weeks ago. To be found in Christ is one of the greatest truths in the entire Bible. To be in Christ, in Christ, means that we have an intimate, dynamic, spiritual union with Christ himself. Now, how does that happen? It happens because of imputed righteousness, which we'll talk about here in a moment. That may be a term that I need to unpack here in a moment, imputed righteousness, or justification by faith alone. What does Paul say there? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We are not saved by anything we produce, any righteousness we have by doing works of the law. That's not how we're found in Christ. It's got to be grace alone. Because how are we born? We were born in Adam. Okay, I want you to think of two words, in Adam, in Christ. Is every single person is born in Adam. Who was Adam? The first man. What did Adam do? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that man, Adam, and death spread through sin, so, I mean, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every single one of us is born in Adam. Because of Adam's sin, he brought sin to all of us. We were born in iniquity. All of us before salvation are in Adam, dead in our sins, hopeless, helpless, unrighteous, unworthy, lost, and depraved. We are in Adam. So there's only two categories of people in this world. Those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. You're born in Adam. How do you get in Christ? Not by works. Not by anything you can do. Simply by faith alone, through grace alone. You're found in Christ. Notice the wording, the exact wording that Paul says there. It is a righteousness from God. What is a righteousness from God? It's a righteousness that's credited to us, imputed to us. What does it mean to have righteousness imputed, reckoned, credited to us? This is basically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay, let me explain this. Because we often only talk about half of the equation, and we need to get the full equation. So let's just play, play along with me and, and, and answer these questions. When you become a Christian, by faith, 
Are all of your sins forgiven through Jesus? Yes. So picture your life as a bank account. You have a negative gazillion balance because of your sin. There's no way that you can get out of debt. So by faith, when you believe in Jesus, he takes all of that debt out of your account. Okay. Now that's great. You're no longer in debt, but you're at zero balance. Which is, anybody here want to have, like nobody wants to be in debt, but does anybody want to have zero in their bank account? Okay. We need to have positive. Paul says you and I cannot produce that positive. The positive has to be credited to us has to be deposited into our account. Jesus' righteousness, this is the second half of the equation, not only is our sin taken out of our account, but all of Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness from God, the perfect life that Jesus lived, all the requirements of the law, that perfect life, the perfect righteousness from God gets credited to us so that God can now look down upon us and say, not guilty. You're found in Christ. You're in Christ. You have a righteousness not from your own, but a righteousness from God. You didn't produce the righteousness. The righteousness was a gift from God to you. You've been justified. Okay, just justification. You're justified only when God the Father, based solely upon the work of Christ in your place on the cross, declares you to be not guilty upon the exercise of the gift of faith. I've just kind of explained all this, but here it is written down. Furthermore, Christ's righteousness is credited to us, and our sins are credited to Christ. This is a one-time, non-repeatable act whereby God shows us sovereign mercy and seeing us as not guilty because of Christ. We're found in Christ, not guilty, justified, imputed righteousness from God. We're found in Christ. We're no longer in Adam Dead, hopeless, helpless, hellbound, spiritually lost. We're now in Christ, saved, righteous. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've been justified by faith. Justified by faith basically means that our sins have been taken out, Christ's righteousness has been credited in, and we're not guilty. That's why Romans 8.1 can say, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, to be found in Christ means this. Let me just summarize everything I've kind of been saying up to this point. To be in Christ means that we are united in Him in a personal relationship through His righteousness and not our own. We are found in Him We're no longer lost or in Adam, but we are now saved, found, declared righteous in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the great news. So this is our salvation to be in Christ. Once you're in Christ, secure in Christ, the outflow of that is, I want to know Christ. I want to pursue Christ. So that becomes the question then. Okay, how should being in Christ as a justified sinner motivate us to live a life pleasing to Him? 
Okay? This is how Paul distinguishes between justification and sanctification. Justification is being found in Christ, one-time declaration, we're not guilty, by faith alone, it's our initial salvation. Sanctification, on the other hand, is that process ongoing where we grow to be more like Jesus. So sanctification is the process a believer undergoes as the Spirit of God works in him or her to make him like Christ, and this continues our entire lifetime. So Paul shifts here from justification to sanctification. In other words, Paul shifts from our position to our condition. This is very important. Our position never changes, but our condition or our progress can. So let me ask you a question. If you're in Christ, can you ever be out of Christ? No. But can you know Christ to a degree of more or less? Yes. One is justification. I'm in Christ. That's secure forever. The other is sanctification. There's degrees to which I can know and grow and be more like Christ. Okay? So the first, first comes being in Christ. You've got to be found in Christ. You've got to have the righteous imputed to you. You've got to be saved. Once that happens, then the outflow of that is I pursue Christ. I grow in Christ. I know Christ. Okay, so in verse 10, what is Paul's desire again? Okay, so here's that desire again. That I may, what? Know him. Twice he's used that term. Again, this is an active verb, strong verb. He wants to know personally, intimately, spiritually the depth of Christ. Paul prays this in Ephesians. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14-19. And we know it's a prayer because it starts with, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, okay, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and here it is, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What a prayer. Pray that prayer every day. Father, would you put in me through your spirit, this deep desire to know the surpassing love of Christ more deeply so that I could be filled with the fullness of God. So it's almost like Paul had a holy dissatisfaction with where he was. Do you hear kind of the holy angst that Paul has here? I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm justified, but... That's just the beginning. I want to know Jesus more deeply. I want to grow in my relationship with Him. And not only does, does Paul want to know Jesus more deeply, but he wants to experience His power. I want to know your power. Notice that. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That resurrection power. I want to experience the power of God. Now all of us here would say, yes, amen. I want to know Jesus. I want to have that power that resurrection power, I want God's power in my life. There's nothing wrong with praying for God's power in your life. But look at the next one. 
You're like, wait a minute, Paul. Why would you have to say that? Keep reading. That I may know him and the power of, the <laughs> of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Ooh, I like to know Jesus. I like the power. But ooh, I don't know if I want to share in his sufferings. I don't know if I want to suffer. You sure, Paul, you're correct there? I can understand. I want to know you, Jesus, more. I want your power more, but I want to suffer? Paul, I think that's a typo. No. It's inspired text that the Holy Spirit wanted there. What if I were to tell you this? What if I were to tell you one of the greatest ways for you to grow to know Jesus more deeply is for him to put you through suffering? Would you raise your hand and say, I'm all for it, Jesus? Or would you run away from it as fast as you could? Because what's the bottom line? Is it, I want to suffer just to suffer? No, it's I want to suffer so that I can know Jesus more fully. And what if Jesus' way for you to know him more fully is to put you through suffering? Now, I'm not saying that's always going to happen. It may be different for, ev for everybody here and how God does that, but God may purposely bring revival and spiritual awakening in your life through suffering as a means for you to know him more fully. And most of us would not raise our hands and volunteer for that. But it could be the best way for God to, to grow you. So Paul wants to know Jesus. He wants to gain Jesus. He wants the power of Jesus. He wants the love of Jesus. He wants to suffer with Jesus. All of these things. But what was Paul's ultimate hope? Verse 11. That by any means possible... I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, at first glance, this may sound like Paul's kind of hoping that by any means possible, I, I don't know if I'm going to do this. That's not the language here. Sometimes in our English, we kind of don't translate it as well as maybe the original language does for us. But Paul's ultimate hope was complete salvation with a resurrected body and the very presence of Christ in heaven. This is what theologians call glorification because he says becoming like him in his death what does it mean becoming like him in his death that's that's glorification that's getting the new glorified body the resurrected i may attain the resurrection from the dead now in verse 11 when paul when paul says by any means possible this is not doubt on paul's part that he's somehow going to miss out on it it's really words of humility coming from the chiefest of sinners who's in awe that God saved him. He's probably thinking to himself, I really can't believe that one day I'm actually going to get a resurrected body and be with Jesus because I know what my former life was. I know I was a persecutor. I know I was a violent opponent. Paul says I was the chief of sinners. Why would this happen to me? Why would God save me? Have you ever wondered why God saved you? I think about that all the time. Because I know if I was God and I knew my sin and God was being just, I wouldn't save me. I wouldn't be deserving of it but I'm thankful that I'm not the one who's saving me. 
It's God who does it. And God saves sinners because he desires to do so, not because we deserve it. And so Paul wants to ultimately experience that final resurrection from the dead. That word resurrection is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a very unique word. It's really unique to Paul. Paul kind of made up a word. It means like out-resurrection or like ultimate resurrection. The new body, the glorified state, which happens at the second coming of Christ when we're changed in the twinkling of an eye and receive our new glorified bodies. So let's kind of recap where Paul's at. Paul says, listen, my former life, morally, religiously, heredity, I was at the top of the charts. But everything that I was, I count as a stinking pile of you know what, because Christ saved me. He gave me his righteousness. I am in Christ. I'm no longer in Adam. He saved me by grace alone, through faith alone. I have a new position. He loves me. And as a result of that, my new passion in life is to know Jesus more, to serve Jesus more, to love Jesus more, to try to get as much of Jesus as I can so that one day I'll see him face to face when I get my new resurrected body and go to heaven and see my Savior. It's that passionate pursuit. And then, We'll look at this next week, but he continues on that theme. He uses some athletic language to talk about this pursuit of Christ. So that's where we're going to end tonight, unless you guys have questions or observations or clarifications or modifications or prognostications. Kevin. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think you're on the right track. I, I think if I could distill it down to Paul, I would just say this is what Paul would say very succinctly. Anything there is to know about Jesus, and he takes me through it, it'll be worth it because I'll know Jesus. Whatever that is. That's why probably the best prayer we could pray is, Lord, whatever would bring you the most glory, 
and ever would most conform me to the image of your son, I want that to be your will, or I want that to be done. And so Paul just was like, he couldn't get enough of Jesus. It was like, I want to share everything that Jesus went through, everything about, I can't get enough of being with Jesus, learning about Jesus, following Jesus, serving Jesus, everything about Christ. I'm, I want that to be my sole passion in life. Whatever that looks like, whatever he ordains for me, that's what I want to be. Whether it's suffering, whether it's persecution, whatever it is, I want to go through it because I'm gaining Christ. And go back to verse um, 8. It's the surpassing worth. It's worth it. It's worth it. More than worth it. Okay. Anybody else have a question? Yes, Brent. Way back there. What do you mean by I don't know what you mean by that? Are you saying like this is beyond individual suffering, like corporate suffering as a church? Well, I think that the principle would be that number one, God ordains all suffering. So if God ordains for a church to go through suffering, for that church to be more like Jesus, that's God's plan for that church the same way it would be for an individual. And if you take it out to the nation, like you said, it could be God's plan for a nation to go through. Like you see that in Israel, nation of Israel all the time. Um, so there's suffering on the individual level, there's suffering on the corporate level, there's suffering on the global level. Um, I think Paul here is probably talking more about the personal, like him personally suffering. But I'm not saying that churches don't go through times of, or families, but God's the one that, that's over sovereign over that. Does, does that answer your question, Brent? Okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we have to be careful that we don't take it too, like to share the sufferings of Christ, that, that cannot mean that we die on the cross and experience what he experienced on the cross. It can't mean that because he experienced the wrath of God. But it could mean in his incarnation, the, um, the persecution, the deprivation, the insults. He says, if, you ha- if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That type of suffering to identify with, with Jesus. All right, anything, anybody else? There's nobody over here tonight. I see that in hand. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord Jesus, we, we want to take this passage to heart where it says that knowing you is of surpassing worth. And Lord, how often do we pursue other things? Lord, I'm guilty of pursuing other things and maybe not bad things. 
maybe not sinful things, but just things that you put your time and attention to that aren't you, Jesus. Help us to devote our time and our energy and our pursuit and our love and our passion to knowing you. And Lord, if that means suffering, help us to suffer well because we know that you're doing it for our good to bring us closer to you. Lord, thank you for those times that you give us power when we di- didn't think we had power and you, you, you strengthened us. Lord, thank you for that final day when we will be resurrected with a new body and see you face to face and spend eternity with you. Um, in the meantime, until that day comes, help us to just want to know you more deeply. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.